0: In light of recent events, this first part may be a little bit painful at the second. On October 14th, 1908, the Chicago Cubs defeated the Detroit Tigers 2 to nothing <laughs> in Game 5 of the World Series to become champions back-to-back years for the first time ever in the history of Major League Baseball. Having won the World Series twice, They looked as though they were beginning a dynasty. That was 108 years ago, and they haven't won a World Series since. In 1945, while attending Game 4 of the World Series, Billy Cyanus was asked to leave Wrigley Field because the odor of his pet billy goat, Murphy, was bothering the fans around him. And if you think that's unreasonable, when was the last time you went to any game with somebody brought their billy goat with them? <laughs> Outraged, Cyanus allegedly declared, them Cubs, they ain't going to win no more. Which has been interpreted to mean that either the Cubs would never win another National League pennant or else they would never again win the World Series. Well, they lost the World Series that year. And until this year, they had never won another National League pennant. The Cubs haven't won the World Series in 108 years. That's a very long time. But today we are approaching a milestone that is actually far greater than the World Series drought that the Cubs are facing right now. On October 31st, 1517, 499 years ago tomorrow, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And although he didn't think much of it at the time, the event that followed completely altered the course of, History And caused many to question the teachings and practices of the dominant Roman Catholic Church. That event is known as the Protestant Reformation. What prompted Luther to write his Disputations was his concern about a certain practice that priests were enacting. And that was that they were going around and they were selling indulgences to people that would supposedly lessen the amount of time that people had to spend in purgatory paying for their sins. In fact, the church had actually begun this practice because it was short on cash and it needed help paying for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I should have put a picture up here. It is a beautiful place. It took a lot of money. Luther was bothered because he had been reading the Bible, and he was disturbed because the practices that he was seeing the Roman Catholic Church practicing were running not only absent from what was found in the Scriptures, but actually completely opposite from what he was reading in the Scriptures. Well, things began to escalate after this event, and eventually the Protestant Reformation was born. And those who supported Luther's ideas were called reformers. And they suffered greatly by putting their lives on the line. And in fact, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you will read the accounts of many who had their lives taken from them violently at the hands of the Roman church. Because these reformers held to five beliefs. Five pillars, if you will of the Reformation. And so this morning, I want to talk about those five pillars of the Reformation that caused these Reformers to hold to so strongly that they were willing to go to the stake. They were willing to be drowned so that they would say, these things are true, and I'm willing to give my life over them. And you may be saying, why should we take the time to talk about this today? I mean, this happened almost 500 years ago. This is something in the past. Why do, we need to, why do we care about the five pillars of the Reformation? Well, the truth is that those same five pillars are beliefs that are challenged today. They haven't gone away. And they're not just challenged by the Roman Catholic Church. They're challenged by literally every major religion and worldview today. And so for us, looking at these five pillars, they're not just some distant memory, These five pillars ought to be our rallying cry as biblical Christians who claim to follow Christ and carry out his mission on earth. In fact, I would dare say that we can't shine the light of Christ to the nations if we do not understand and hold fast to the same pillars that many of the Reformers died for nearly 500 years ago. So what are those five pillars? Well, I'm going to go ahead and I'll go through them and I'll say them. You can write them down if you want, but we're going to go ahead and go through them each one by one. So if you want to write them down as we go, that's fine as well. We'll explain what they mean. Each of them starts with the word "sola," which is Latin for "alone." So that'll help you understand right off the bat what they stand for. Number one, "sola scriptura." Number two, "sola gratia." Three, "sola fide." 4, sola Christus, and 5, soli, which is just another way of saying sola, deo gloria. So what do these things mean? Follow along and we'll go through them each one by one this morning. Let's start first of all with sola scriptura, scripture alone. Please turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, as we start this morning, and we're going to be throughout the scriptures, so I, I appreciate if you, uh, you'll, be, you'll be going around in different places. If you've got an electronic Bible, maybe that won't cause your hands to be dexterous, but go ahead and be ready to be turning as we go throughout the scriptures this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now at the time when uh, Martin Luther lived, very few people could actually read the Bible. And the reasons are actually twofold. First of all, uh, the Bible that they had available to them was written in Latin, uh, which pretty much only the educated clerics could read. Okay? Uh, if you were a normal person and you, you worked a normal type of job at the time, you couldn't read the scriptures in Latin because you didn't know Latin. So that would have been a struggle for them. Uh, second of all, the scripture was not widely available in print at the time. The only Bible that was accessible to most towns was the one that was actually chained to the pulpit in the church. So if you wanted to read it, and you could read Latin, you could go to your local church and go up to the pulpit and read the Bible. So there you go. That's your opportunity to read the Scriptures. So very few people could read the Bible, so therefore very few people actually did read the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church didn't want normal people reading the Bible because then they could form their own interpretations of what it said. And the church wanted absolute authority over the people's lives. In fact, over time, the Roman Catholic Church changed its doctrine and said not only do we want you not to read the Bible, but actually what we say, all the things that we teach, our traditions, what the Pope says, what the Cardinals say, All of these things are actually more authoritative than what the Scriptures say. Unless you think that's changed, they still believe that. What they teach is actually more true than what the Scripture says, more authoritative. So, what does the Bible have to say about that? Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 to 17 as we start this morning. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how, from a childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's telling him here that his entire life he has been taught from the scriptures. And the scriptures are able to make somebody wise for salvation. Now, all that Paul means here is that the scriptures contain everything you need to know to know how you have to be saved. The scriptures don't leave out any hidden formula. There's no certain person you have to go to. Uh, You don't have to take a pilgrimage someplace. The scriptures give you all you need to know to be saved. Then he goes on to make this remarkable claim that most of us have heard many times, but we rarely understand all of its implications. Notice that he says every word of God is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching us, for reproving us when we go astray for correcting us by getting us back on the right path, and then for training us like children are trained in the way that we should go. These are the very things that Scripture does in our lives. And Paul says that it does them with the result that we will be complete or mature, equipped for every single good work. So in other words, the Scripture is capable of telling us everything that we need to know to live the kind of life that God commands us to live. He doesn't say, I expect you to live a certain way, but then I'm not going to reveal the details. You're going to have to find those out by going to certain people in life. Or you're going to have to, you're going to, have to search in the ground and dig everywhere until you find a hidden treasure, and that will tell you how you're supposed to live. He doesn't give you a little code that you have to listen on the radio and find you know, what exactly it says, and then follow that and you'll learn how to live. He gives us everything we need to know to live the life that God wants us to live, In his word. And there is no greater authority in our lives than the authority that God breathed out literally for us. We are complete with the scriptures alone. So you can imagine going back to Martin Luther when he realized this doctrine that the scripture alone is the final authority and not the Roman church. What do you think he he thought we had to do about that? Well, we had to address the whole problem of the fact that nobody's reading the authority. So the first thing Martin Luther does is he gets right about the business and starts throwing all of his energies into Bible translation and encouraging other people to translate the Bible into the vernacular, which is the common language, the common tongue of the people. If people are going to listen to the final authority in their lives, they have to be able to read it. So therefore, Martin Luther gets busy about translating the Bible. In fact, one of the most important translations ever to occur in all of history was Martin Luther's translation of the Scriptures into German. That's as important to the people in Germany as we look at the King James Bible was to us here in English. A a monster of an importance that translation was. And Luther encouraged people, start reading the scriptures. In fact, Martin Luther said it this way, he wanted to translate the Bible so that the common plowboy can understand. Now, for us today, we might say, We want the Scriptures to be understood by everybody, even the people who are working the jobs way high up and the the people who are making minimum wage. We want everybody to be able to understand the Scriptures. So therefore, we need to eliminate this barrier between the Word of God and everyday normal people. Well, you can imagine this really changed everything. People started reading the Bible, discovering that much of what they have been taught their entire lives, unlike Timothy who had been raised from a young boy on the scriptures, on on the truth of God, they found out that they had been raised on lies. And so much of what they had been taught was actually contrary to what the scriptures said. So they began to see these other doctrines that we're going to be talking about in the four pillars, the other pillars of the Reformation, and they started to see them in the scriptures just like we're going to see them today, and it changed their lives forever. And in fact, it changed the course of history forever when they started to read the Word of God for the first time. This is really when the Protestant Reformation started to take off. Because it's one thing if one authority says, this is what you should believe, and then Martin Luther comes along and says, well, this is really what you should believe. Well, who do you listen to then? Flip a coin. But what if you say, this is what the Bible says? You read it yourself. Who do you believe now? This changed everything when people started reading the Bible. And really this this makes me want to ask a question. If you didn't have access to a Bible, would it change the way that you live at all? What if the only Bible in Mishawaka was the one that was chained to this pulpit? And you have to look at the pulpit, there's none chained chained up here right now. But what if we just had one big Bible and it was sitting up here and it was chained here and further, it was in Latin. We can still say Latin because I don't know anyone in here who can read Latin. So what if that were the only scripture up here? Would that change the way that you live at all? Would you notice the absence in your life of the Word of God? It's really quite embarrassing That We have so many Bibles available to us today, and we claim to stake our lives on it, but so few of us really ever bother to read it outside of on Sundays at church. Uh, As I sit up here, I've got access to at least three Bibles, and you sitting in your seats probably have at least one, maybe two, maybe many, if you've got several apps, different translations of the scriptures. Really, it's not profitable for us to talk about which translation to read out of. Thank God you have one you can read. (laughs) Thank God you can understand the scriptures in your own language. The question is, though, do you read it? Is your life changed by it? These people, when they began to read the scriptures, their lives completely changed. It changed everything about them. And the question for us is is our life changed? What if we read our Bibles as much as we checked Facebook on our phones? I don't mean in the same manner as we read Facebook, like just look at it for a second and then look at it again another second. But what if if we compiled all the time we spent checking Facebook and we read our Bibles that much? I wonder which would be greater, first of all. What if we were as excited to read the words that God breathed out for us as we are to check to see how many likes our last Instagram photo got? I wonder if if that would be a huge change to us. But maybe you do read your Bible faithfully, and I, I sure hope that that's true for most of the people in here. My question for you is, do you actually base your convictions in life on what you read in the Scriptures? It's always amazing to me when we do something a little bit differently in our church, and somebody doesn't really like it because it's different than the way that we used to do it. And I understand that. Believe me, we're all creatures of habit. Change is sometimes very hard for us. But occasionally it's, no, we, we shouldn't do it this way. We need to go back to the way we used to do it. And we try to ask, is there a biblical reason uh, that you believe that we should be doing it the way we used to do it? And the truth is, that's never the case. It's always, no, we, we've just never done it that way. And so we need to go back to the way we were doing it. Do we really want to be governed by our tradition? If we believe that Scripture alone is the final authority in all matters, then our tradition should not rule us. Now, we can be informed by our tradition, and we should, but we should never be ruled by our traditions. Scripture alone is our final authority. There's a funny story that we've heard from this pulpit before that illustrates this point very well. A husband, when watching his wife cooking... um, he asked her why she always cut off the end of the rump roast before roasting it. She replied, I'm not sure why. I've never thought about it. My mother always cut off the end of the rump roast, so there must be a reason. So a few weeks later, mother visited the family, and the man asked his wife's mother, We were wondering, why do you always cut off the end of the rump roast before you roast it? She replied, I don't know. I've never thought about it. My mother always cut off the end of the rump roast, so there must be a reason. Well, of course, this made them all curious. So they decided that they were going to call the wife's mother's mother, the grandmother, to see what she said. So grandmother answered the phone, and the husband said to her, Your daughter and granddaughter have been cutting off the end of the rump roast before they put it in the pan, and they said they do it because you did it. Why do you always cut off the end of the rump roast before you roast it? And grandmother replied, Oh, well, I don't know why you two are doing it, but my roasting pan was too small. I had to cut it off to fit it in the pan. And here they just kept doing the same old thing just because somebody else did it. When in fact the reason was completely extinct by this point. As those who believe in Scripture as the final authority in our lives, everything we do should be grounded in the authority of the Word of God. The way that we use our time, the way that we treat our family, the way that we give, All of these should be done in a way that reflects what the Scripture says. Because we believe in sola scriptura, Scripture alone is our authority. Now let's go to the second pillar of the Reformation. The second pillar is sola gratia, grace alone. And I want you to go ahead and turn with me then to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, as we talk about this second pillar of the Reformation, sola gratia, grace alone. One of the biggest problems that Luther came to have with the Roman church was their teaching that salvation is by faith and works. They taught that a person must believe and trust in God in order to be saved, but he also must attain a certain level of merit of good works in order to be saved. Well, as those who have access to what God breathed out on this matter, let's see what God says concerning how one is saved. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing or anything that you do. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, Paul is very careful in this passage to explain to us both, not only positively, how we are saved, but also negatively, how we are not saved. Notice that he says, first of all, a person is saved by grace, which is God's unmerited favor. It is a gift given to man by God. These two descriptions very clearly show that that salvation is something that is given, it is not earned. And clearly you can see Paul says he is not saved as a result of works. A person can't merit his salvation. Notice that he says it doesn't come from anything that you do. When he writes to Titus, he says it this way, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The scriptures couldn't be any more clear than they are in this chapter. Salvation comes solely from God's own pleasure. He gives it freely to men because no man could ever merit it. The eternal riches of everlasting Life with God cannot be merited by sinful men. And the song that we sang a few minutes ago puts this very well, and I hope you noticed it. No list of sins I have not done, nothing I've ever refrained from doing. No list of virtues I pursue, nothing I strive for. No list of those I'm not like. I'm not like those other people. At least I didn't do what they did. None of those things can earn myself a place with you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer. Nothing I put on can make me earn favor with God. Nothing I say, no lifted hands, no tearful song. If I cry a little bit, if I pray a little bit harder, that doesn't earn me favor with God. No recitation of the truth. If I read along some creed that says truth, that doesn't make me saved says, none of that can justify a single wrong that I've done. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gifts I give, can cleanse my conscience, can cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. In this chapter of Ephesians 2, Paul says by ourselves, we are dead in our sins and we are incapable of even trusting in God without God first taking the initiative and reaching out to us. So you can understand why Martin Luther became so distraught when he read the scriptures for the first time on this matter and understood what the Roman church was doing. The teaching that people can basically just come up and pay a little bit of money and get a piece of paper that says, hey, you've just cut off a few years of purgatory and paying for your sins. Martin Luther says, I don't see that in the Word of God. I don't see that in the scriptures. It says here there's absolutely nothing you can do, no work that you can do that can save you. Your salvation comes completely from God. So I want to ask you, do you believe that salvation is a gift? Or do you think that God won't accept you until you clean up your life? The scriptures are quite clear. You can't clean up your life. God only saves people with messy lives. They're the only people he saves. There's no way you could clean up your life because you are a sinner, just like I am a sinner. We are all sinners. We cannot save ourselves. Do you believe that salvation is a gift? And secondly, are you trusting in God alone for your salvation? You know, if salvation isn't completely a work of God, then he doesn't get all the credit. You get some of the credit because you did part of it. But that's not true. Salvation is totally of God. There's nothing man can do to contribute to his salvation. It has to be by grace alone. And that's the second pillar. The second pillar of the Reformation, sola gratia, grace alone. So what's the third one? We've noted that salvation can only come as a gift of God. We can't earn it, but who receives the gift of God? The third pillar is sola Fide, faith alone. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, again, a very familiar passage, but one of the most powerful ones in the scriptures. I want us to turn there. Romans chapter 1. Luther was greatly moved when he was reading the book of Romans and he came across verses 16 and 17 because this is really when the light bulb moment came on in his life, and the Holy Spirit showed him the condition he was in, because he was distressed because he had been taught his whole life as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church that what you need to do is you need to work on yourself. You need to contribute to your salvation, you need to do these things. And Luther, as a sensitive man, understands i 'm not getting any better. I 'm still just as sinful. I have no assurance that my good works are going to superimpose over my bad works. How do I know that I'm going to be saved? He's totally distraught, and then he comes across these verses, verses 16 and 17. Let's read them together. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel, the good news, tells us that God's salvation is given to those who have faith. And the verb for faith, translated into English, is translated believe. So really, the same word in the original language when the scriptures were written. So quite literally, he's saying the way that you are saved is to faith, to believe. And everyone who faiths, that's why we translated it believe, because it's hard to say. Everyone who faiths will be saved. And it's not just a one-time deal where you believe once and you're good. No, the righteous actually says live by faith. This means we are to live constantly in a state of trusting and believing even when our lives are shaken, even when we can't see five steps ahead or even two steps ahead. We're supposed to live by faith each step of the way. And that's when Martin Luther read this, his eyes were opened because he realized it's not about what I do. It's about living by faith. The righteousness of God is given to those who faith. And this, this turned his world upside down. Now a lot of people, and i met many people who have been tripped up because they can't remember exactly when they were saved. They don't remember the exact time or date when they first believed. And this, this really distresses them. And I want to encourage you that this should not trouble you. In fact, sometimes the time and date of your salvation is something that actually trips people up more because then they start to trust in the time and date rather than the grace that saved them in the first place. There's actually a good way I'd like you to think about it. You want to think about your faith like a shirt. If somebody calls you up on the phone and asks you if you're wearing your cub shirt, you don't pause and think back to that morning. Let's see here. I got up, I took a shower, brushed my teeth, put on deodorant, dried off. Uh, maybe not all in that order. Um, and then I put on a shirt. Let's see here. Was it the Cubs one I put on or did I put on the turquoise one? Which one was it? Okay. Nobody does that. What would you do? You look down. Oh, yeah. I'm wearing the Cubs one. It's the same way if you're saved. What do you do if somebody asks you if you're saved? You don't need to think back to the exact moment of your salvation when you first believed. Are you trusting right now for your salvation? Are you living by faith today? That's the assurance that we are given. You live by faith today. You trust in Christ today. Are you living by faith? That's the assurance we have in salvation. But I want to be clear. It's not just enough to just have faith or to just just trust in anything. That's a very common thing for us to hear these days. Take heart. Just believe, right? I mean, how many sports teams use that as their motto? Believe. They've all got the big posters. Believe. Just believe. Just have faith. They can do it. That's not good enough when it comes to salvation. You don't just believe. You have to believe in something. Or you have to believe in someone. You can't just blanket belief. So the fourth pillar of the Reformation is sola Christus Christ alone. So please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 is just our second to the last passage. Galatians chapter 2. Your belief needs to have an object. What do you believe in? Well I believe things will get better. What are you believing in that would make you think that that was the case? Well, I just believe that things will get better. Don't trust your eternal destiny on that kind of a belief. Galatians 2, verse 16. Probably one of the most powerful verses to talk about this subject. Galatians 2, 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Can you say it in any more ways in one verse, Paul? Three times in this verse, Paul says that the only faith that saves is faith in Jesus. Do you notice that? He says we can't be justified without faith in Jesus. Now, we want to be clear. What does this word justified mean? Don't just let this word kind of roll off as just another one of those theological words that doesn't mean anything. To justify means to declare somebody to be righteous or just or to be in the right. I'm declaring that you are in the right. That's what a judge says at the end of a court case when he rules in the favor of that person. God can't look at you and say that you're righteous When you're anything but righteous, that would make him a bad God. He's unjust. For him to look at you in all of your filthy rags and to say, you're righteous, you're free. That would not make him God. That would make him a tyrannical ruler. But in fact, God is just. So how does he deal with this problem? Well, many religions teach the need to earn merit as part of your salvation. But it's impossible to earn merit in God's sight when your efforts are no better than filthy rags, empty attempts at righteousness. The only hope we have is for someone else to live perfectly, to live a perfect life, and then for God to credit that man's righteousness to our account. And then furthermore, since there has to be punishment for all of those sins that we take, he has to take all of those filthy unrighteous punishments and he has to place them on that person who lived perfectly. And anybody who knows that that's the only scenario should say, well, who's going to do that? I mean, who would do that? But the glories of the gospel is that that's exactly what happened. Is that Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life He fulfilled the law on every account. And so he has perfect righteousness, and yet God takes that righteousness and he credits it to our accounts. Everybody who believes, who has faith in Jesus, he credits it to our accounts, and then he takes the punishment for our sins and he places them on Jesus, and he dies in our place. The thing that should have been impossible becomes possible. And that through faith in Christ, People, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. An unbelievable thing happens so that if if we have faith in anything other than Christ now, we are damned for all eternity because Christ is the only way. It's sola Christus, Christ alone. We could never fulfill the law perfectly by ourselves. We needed somebody to do it for us, and it has been done. Will you believe in Christ alone? We've got to ask ourselves a serious question, folks. Do we really believe that salvation is only by Christ? There are a lot of people out there today who believe sincerely that they can be saved by rituals like baptism, or by giving a lot of money, or by praying a certain amount of time, or by just doing a little bit more good than bad. We live in a world that says, do whatever works for you. And if you are somebody who shares your faith and you share it with somebody today, you should not be surprised if they say, wow, that's great for you. That sounds like that'll work for you. Good for you. But that's not for me. We live in a postmodern society that says something can be good for somebody, but it doesn't really apply to somebody else. Truth is relative. Folks, are we prepared to hold to this truth that salvation is by Christ and in Christ alone? Or do we just kind of leave that lingering thought in the back of our heads? Well, maybe there's another way. Maybe if they just, maybe if they never hear, maybe then they'll be saved. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Let's just not tell anybody about the gospel. Then everybody will be saved. You don't find that in the scriptures. We find salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so, Christian, you may trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Do you live in Christ alone? Do you depend on him for the very food that you eat? Or do you depend on a successful job that you have? Look, we're thankful for the jobs that God gives to us. And that is the means, often, by which we earn the money to buy the food that we have. But let's never convince ourselves... That our jobs are what we're trusting in. Let's never think, well, things are going to be okay. I mean, I have a pretty good job. Look, if we're trusting in the job, we're not trusting in Christ alone. Are we people who believe in Christ alone? Teenager, do you find all the approval and affirmation that you need in Christ alone? Do you rely on what your friends think about you instead? Is it more important to you that you get at least 10 likes on every photo that you post on Instagram? Or are you secure in knowing that Christ values enough that he is praying for you daily before the throne of God? What a powerful promise. Are you secure in that promise? The scriptures alone are our authority. They show us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But for what purpose? Why? So we get to the fifth and final pillar of the Reformation. And that is Soli Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. Would you please turn with me to your last passage here. The last passage is in Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43. And there are a lot of passages that we could look at today concerning this final point. But Isaiah 43, 5-7 summarizes it very well. God is speaking here concerning Israel, his chosen people, and he's talking about uh, the ways that he has loved them, and the way that he's concerned for them, and the way that he's providing for them. And so let's read starting in verse 5, Isaiah 43. The scriptures say, Fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And perhaps you're thinking about a particular passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah where he talks about how God formed him, he created him for a specific purpose, the very same purpose that we find in this passage. God's purpose in creating us was to bring himself glory. When mankind fell and brought upon itself the curse that damns us to eternity in hell, God's purpose in sending Jesus to accomplish redemption was to bring himself glory. Glory. And when we trust in Christ for salvation, God's purpose for the rest of our lives is to bring him glory. There's no purpose or any time in our lives whereby we are not to be bringing glory to the one that created, who saved us, who sustains us, and who one day is coming back for us. The very purpose we exist, the very purpose we are here is to bring him glory. Do we live that way? Of course, we we worship God on Sunday at church. But do we understand that the rest of our lives are to bring Him glory as well? Is your life radically changed on Monday? It shouldn't. We are created for the purpose of glorifying God with everything that we have. We work hard at our jobs, not to impress the boss, but to bring God glory. We love our children. Those of you who are parents, we seek to raise them the right way, not so that others will praise us for having good kids, or so that others will look at us and say, you're a good parent. But you do it to bring Him glory, to bring God glory. We exercise good stewardship of our money and our resources, not so that God just gives us more. We do it to bring Him glory. We serve God in ways that stretch us and make us uncomfortable, not because we necessarily enjoy being stretched or uncomfortable, but because we want to bring God the maximum glory because He deserves far more than we could possibly ever give Him. It's a little illustration again since we are talking about the Reformation. Another very famous reformer who changed things in a big way by what he taught and what he wrote and whose writings people still read all the time. John Calvin, near the end of his life, he kept preaching from his bed while someone, some have estimated that up to 83 diseases were raging through his body. He's still up here preaching from his bed. I want to know how many of you would listen to me if I were up here preaching from my bed with 83 diseases raging through me. Like we would today, some close friends and probably some who probably weren't as keen of him said, you know, it's, it's time to quit. You should really stop. Do you know what Calvin said to them? I can't. My master's glory is at stake. How many of us live as though our Master's glory is at stake in the decisions that we make in life? How many of us make the small decisions of our lives each and every day with the conscious thought that God's glory is at stake by what we do? The Scripture alone is our final authority. And it boldly declares salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. These are not just some ancient truths that should be buried in our history books. These are the very rallying cries that we ought to hold up as people who cling to the scriptures today. As people who confront the culture that we live in. And all of the false truths and Subjective truths swirling about today, do we believe these things? Are you willing to die for these things? But even more so, are you willing to live for them? Are you willing to be changed by the scripture and declare these truths together? Let's pray. Father, your word is like a hammer. It breaks the biggest rocks. It shatters the hardest hearts. It convicts us. It teaches us. It shows us your power. It reveals you to us. And Father, we have seen these truths that changed the world nearly 500 years ago in your word today because they're still true would you please convince us that they are true and would you help us to live as they are true as we are convinced that they are true help us to sing with the conviction that what we're saying is true so much so that we would be willing to live by these things and to die by these things if that's what your will desires, if that's what brings you the most glory, if that's what we want the most. Father, would you be glorified in our response to your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.